Budget Press Review, Kelly McClure. Amanda, or Mandy, depending on who was addressing her, didn't have much time before she had to leave for her reading, but still had to do it. For the past five years, at least once a day, sometimes more, she did it, and this night would be no different. She hoped that someday she would be able to stop, that she would wake one morning not wanting to do it anymore, but today, tonight, was not that time. She had to do it, wanted to do it, so she would. Just once, though, and then she'd leave. She hadn't read her work in public since the holidays and knew at least a handful of people, mostly fans of her older stuff, the more humorous stuff, were looking forward to hearing it. She didn't want to let anyone down by showing up not feeling quite right. Doing the thing once, she can carry on as normal, any more than that and it sticks to her. She poured herself a small glass of wine, which normally would have been bigger, but she was still anticipating being able to drive herself to the bookstore that night. She got her phone off of her desk, sat cross-legged on the living room floor of her apartment, and dialed. Sometimes they don't pick up, which feels like an itch gone unscratched. Tonight, there was no doubt in her mind they would. Hello? The voice, middle-aged, female, chipper, hit Amanda's inner ear like fingers snapping. She sat there, not answering, listening to the silence that rolled in after the greeting deadened, imagining the room she was reaching, warming to her, knowing her. Hello? The voice said again, a bit more impatient, concerned, and then another time. Hello? Amanda grabbed for the moments in between the woman's words and breath, squeezing them. She heard a TV faintly in the background. It made her want to scream. Both of my parents died in that house, Amanda said, as calmly and plainly as if she were ordering a pizza. Miss, please, I asked you to stop calling here. The woman couldn't sound surprised by what she just heard. She wasn't. She'd been getting the same call for years. At this point, Amanda suspected, it was just as much a part of her daily routine to receive the calls as it was for her to make them. I'm sorry, Amanda said again calmly, a simple misstyle and not something that felt like a necessity. I'm sorry. I know you are, dear. God bless you. The woman ended the call, and Amanda took as deep of a breath as she could, holding in the last few bits of the connection and then exhaling them. Sometimes she liked to imagine that doing so, in time, would transfer the air over there to the air in here, making her living room just a bit more full of that living room. She wanted to call again, but stopped herself. She was excited about the reading and was proud of herself for feeling so. She gathered up her bag, keys, notebook, and walked out, locking up safely behind her. Sitting behind the wheel of her car, she looked up at the dark, empty windows of her apartment, imagining that air, her home air, still inside. She touched her right here and put those fingers to her lips, that too. The drive to the bookstore was quick. She practiced the poem she was going to read as she drove. She said it out loud, letting the red and green lights of the road help to punctuate. This house is made of blood and bone, 
I will never die in a rental. When they come back for me, once the streetlights turn on and it's time to go home, I will be new. Who will look for clues of me? Who will go through my stuff, smelling things, putting things against their chest? A dramatic and embarrassing hug, a fantasy. Who will make a story for me? Bigger than the one that I made for myself. Our skin wraps around these walls like dripping paint. Our breath fogs these windows still, mine the warmest, the freshest. This house is made of blood and bone, and one day the salt of my body will get absorbed into it, hovering uncomfortably, poofy and anticipating. And after sun sets, when the outside heat loses its grip, I'll drop, fertilize the floorboards, and wait for my own tense fruits. There was this used bookstore in Riverside called Universal Books, and it was like, it was a used bookstore, and I used to go in there, and I would leave my budget press there for free, you know, on the thing or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and she had found it, and she had sent it to me, and she was still in high school, and she was just coming out. She was, ju- you know... Right, she was coming into being a lesbian, and she was in the Riverside suburb and just nowhere land, Republican, right wing, you know, whatever. Right, mm-hmm. and uh, and she was a poet, well, high school poet, coming into her own kind of you know lesbian kind, you know, whatever. So she's perfect for budget press. Oh my God, you're perfect for the house of man. You're perfect for budget press. Absolutely. You know, and so we were, and we were all, I mean, I was, so I'm like, I don't know, I think I'm about 12 years older than her, you know, or something like that. And, um, and, uh, and, and so, and she was the first person ever to act who I didn't know that just off the street submitted something to me. So just very special, very special to budget press, always very special because she was the first really. You know, um, that wasn't just me publishing my friends. And um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, and her poetry was the poetry of, you know, a teenage girl in high school. I, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, but, you know, it, you know, but budget press has always been or, or was always about I don't really even care if the poetry's that good or not as long as I can relate to it and it speaks to me, is there something in there that I can feel, um, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that her poetry was, you know, bad poetry. It wasn't, it was the, but it wasn't the poetry of a, of a teenage girl. Yes, it was. Um, but you know, there was something in there, you know, uh, God, it's been a long time since I actually read them. Um, you know, but there, that, that I, you know, that, you know, she, there was a voice that wanted to be heard that had something to say in a way that I understood that I could get something from. And, uh, and then mm. so I published her and she started, um, you know, and she started hanging out, you know, around the house of men. Oh, that sounds like a mistake. Um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> for her. You know, I mean, for mm. some people, it was a mistake, including people who are dead. But um, I, but for her, it wasn't a mistake because I know, 
she had the biggest, biggest crush on Celeste, on Bob's wife, uh, you know, on Celeste, one of my roommates, one of the redheaded stripper girlfriends hmm. who jumped in front of a train eventually. But, hmm. um, uh, you know, she had a big crush on Celeste and Celeste was just Celeste, man. She was, and you know, I can, t- I can g- go on for an hour about Celeste, but Celeste was, she was a unique girl, man. And she wasn't someone that had a lot of filters. And, and she would tease, um, tease Kelly, uh, not nicely, or at least not in a way that I, that, you know, a 16 year old girl who is, you know, becoming, you know, is realizing her lesbianism and is having this crush on this girl, on this gorgeous, unique, one of a kind woman that Celeste was. And Celeste would just like tease her. Um, and, you know, in some, you know, and she would be upset and, and, and like me and Pat and Bob, we'd all just be like, you know something? That's just Celeste. Okay, and you either accept it or you just don't. And either you get it or you don't. And that's just Celeste, how Celeste is. And you can't tell Celeste what to do. You can't control Celeste. That's just who she is. And, uh, you know, and I just, and I'll always remember that. And, 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 um, but with Kelly, I think that we, you know, uh, you know, and now you could talk to her about it and I could, I could be wrong, but I think that we provided for a short period of her youth, a place where you, you, uh, yeah, we know you're a freak and we don't care. Jesse kicked open the battered door to his trailer and released a tremendous burp into the crisp morning air. To further punctuate the matter, he arched a yellowed meteor of phlegm into a rusty coffee can, mixed in with other miscellaneous trash out front, which landed with a satisfying splat. Surveying the landscape in front of him while pulling on his hat, he mentally organized what would become the rest of his day. Not a particularly smart man, nor a clever man, Jesse prided himself on having a wide array of interests ranging from practical to terrifying. A rancher by necessity, he was hired seasonally to maintain the cattle range of one Edward Lower, a crusty cuss from Alabama who fell into ownership of family land in Houston when the powers that be couldn't locate anyone better in the bloodline to give it to. For the most part, Lower left Jesse alone to do the tedious, brainless work required in keeping cows from wandering off to die in the elements or of dehydration, as the only water available to them was the tank water that Jesse poured from barrels into various metal tanks spaced out on the property. It was long and lonely work, but it paid decent and gave him a place to stay for nearly half of the year. The good and bad thing about solitary work of this nature is that it allows for a great deal of free time. In Jesse's case, free time could only lead to thinking, which was something he preferred not to do, if he could help it. 
Some people have good thoughts and happy memories that they enjoy rolling around in their mind like you'd roll around good whiskey in your mouth before you swallow it. Jesse's thoughts have never been of this sort, and he'd much rather keep them at bay, or spit them out as they came like he does with his smoker's phlegm into the coffee can. What he's found works best is to just keep busy. Working himself to the point of exhaustion would allow for him to sleep much easier at night. And when that didn't work, well, there was always booze. But there was only so much of that to go around. And the two guys who dropped off supplies once a month made it clear that liquor could not be added to the list. <clears throat> Grabbing his clipboard and counter clicker, he set out on foot to get a start on the day's task that ate up the most amount of time counting cows. Lower meant nothing to him when it came to being a man or a human or a property owner, but he signed his check at the end of the season, so for five months out of the year he was God. There was one thing Lower cared about and one thing only, having as many cows at the end of that season as he did going into it. So Jesse counted them twice, every day, checking their ear tags by hand against the range's master sheet a process which took about four hours. After this was done, he filled their water tanks using a 20 times bought and resold forklift, dumped cow mix into the wall of troughs along the property line, and then the rest of the evening was his to do with as he pleases. <clears throat> the property line where the cows all met up to eat was near both a country road as well as remote Amtrak rails. This being the case, an odd assortment of things would often get discarded there by people passing through who had stuff they wanted to make disappear and who wanted to then disappear themselves. Throughout this year's run alone, Jesse had collected several cats, nice to have around for the feed mice, license plates, good for rolling cigarettes on, an old dog <clears throat> that helped him with the cows for a while until he up and died, and a sickly looking horse. The horse, starved to the bone and dried up around the nose and lips from dehydration, was the most surprising to come across. <clears throat> it had been tied to a metal fence pole and was so malnourished that its skin was hanging off its body. Upon first approach, it shivered in fear so badly that the skin moved in waves like the thighs of a well-fed woman in full sprint. Jesse fed it some cow mix, gained its trust, and then fashioned a too small sized pen for it behind his trailer. He could have made the pen bigger to give the horse more room and comfort. He had the supplies laying around, stuff repurposed from fence mending and such. But there was something about seeing the horse buck and thrash and run in circles that Jesse liked. Sometimes late at night, when it had become clear that sleep wasn't a possibility, He'd walk out to the pen in only his undershorts and stare at the poor horse. The healthier he got, the more panicked he got, and there was a look in his eye that suggested he knew he would have been better off left tied to that fence pole where he was found. <clears throat> Things went on like this for a while. The cows, the counting, the feeding, Jesse's private time. No one day particularly stood out from the other for many weeks so much so that he lost track of time completely and got caught off guard by the two supply delivery men making their monthly drop-off. The men, Juan and Billy, were used to Jesse eagerly waiting for them outside his trailer door, but on this particular evening they had to go looking for him. There were not that many places on the property for a person to be, aside from the trailer, 
and horse pen they saw he had made behind it, there was nothing but flat, dry land and a shed for the storing of cow feed, water tanks, and maintenance gear. Figuring this was the only place Jesse could be, they walked towards it. Opening the door to the shed, they were immediately struck with every possible smell that could be associated with cats. Cat pee, cat poop, and cat death. Jesse stood at the back of the room facing a workbench and was so occupied with whatever it was he was in the middle of that he didn't hear them in the room at all. When Juan touched his shoulder to get his attention, he jerked with such alarm that what he was holding in his hand flew out and hit Juan's shoulder. Looking down, Juan saw a severed cat leg plop to the floor. There was blood on his shirt from where it had hit him. Both he and Billy backed out the door with Jesse staring blankly at them the whole way. Just before they shut the shed door and made a run for their truck, they saw Jesse turn back to his workbench, his right elbow moving back and forth in a sawing motion. The next morning, before the sun was even out, there was a knock on the door from Edward Lower. There wasn't much conversation about what had obviously been relayed to him by Juan and Billy, but it was made clear that Jesse had until that afternoon to clear out. He was given his payment minus necessary cleaning costs for the shed. Whether he hadn't known about it or Plain didn't care one way or the other, Lower hadn't said anything about the horse. After his Cadillac pulled away and he was alone again, Jesse gathered up his duffel bag of stuff, stashed it in his pickup, and then walked over to the pen. When the horse saw him, its nostrils flared. The closer Jesse got, the more agitated the horse appeared. Attention grew in the air as an unspoken exchange between man and beast was had, amounting to the fact that neither of them knew what was going to happen next. Jesse unlatched the pen and stepped inside the space that was barely big enough for the horse, let alone the both of them. Left with no other choice, the horse reared up to kick Jesse, but he grabbed its legs before they could connect. The horse, having been fed and watered more regularly in the past months than it likely had in its whole life, was still small for its age and breed due to prior neglect. Its two front legs, which should have felt like solid muscle in Jesse's hands, felt like kindling. He gripped them harder, and with two quick upward moves of his wrists, heard two loud cracks, and then the horse was down. <clears throat> Jesse pulled the house, the horse out of the pen. I'm going to start that over. Jesse pulled the horse out of the pen so he could have more room, and then began to throw punches into its side. He'd been fond of the punching bag at his old gym back a million lives ago and noticed that the blows he was landing into the side of this dying animal felt similar. Well, aside from the boniness of it all. He kept hitting until he couldn't hit anymore and that there was no distinguishing between the blood from his own hands and the blood now pouring from the side of the horse. Once a wound had been opened, he went from punching to grabbing and pulling tearing chunks of the horse and the horse's entrails and flinging them wildly into the dirt all around him. When his arms and back tired from this, he allowed his eyes to focus. There was nothing left of the horse but a stain, and nothing left of his mind but a muffled buzz. Wiping his hands on his jeans and through his hair, Jesse looked up into the big sky above, not knowing what to do from there, 
He sat in the dirt next to the horse's head, shut its eyes, and then shut his own. You know, she's just someone that, uh, that I, you know, I feel close to. And, um, yeah, I mean, she means a lot to me. Uh, and, um, and so, uh, uh, I'm proud of her, like, you know, and, 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 uh, and so, and, uh, anyway, so that's Kelly. And I think that, um, her stories, her fiction, I just, I think they're fucking really good. You can find Kelly on Instagram and Twitter at Wolfie Vibes. That's at W-O-L-F-I-E-V-I-B-E-S. The poems in this episode were The House of Blood and Bone from Budget Press Review Number 9 and Big Sky from Terrible Stories. <laughs>